Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge. We're a nonprofit newsroom covering education at all levels. A philosopher named Kieran Egan spent much of his career arguing that schools need to tap into the same sense of wonder that led early humans to seek unifying stories to explain their place in the world. Basically, he said teachers need to do more to incorporate myths, jokes, and riddles into their teaching practices, from the earliest grades all through high school. I had been covering education for a while, and I'll admit I had not heard of this particular scholar. Though he had a long and distinguished career, much of it as a professor at Simon Fraser University in Canada. Egan passed away in 2022, but his ideas are sort of having a moment in tech and innovation circles, thanks to a recent blog post on a website popular among Silicon Valley insiders. The blog where this post appeared is called Astral Codex 10, which has been around for a while. You might have heard of it under its previous name, Slate Star Codex. And the blog covers science, medicine, philosophy, politics, and futurism. The blog has been described by the New York Times as a, quote, window into the psyche of many tech leaders that are building our collective future, unquote. Every year, this blog hosts a book review contest, and the most recent winner summarizes a book by Kieran Egan that was published back in 1997. The book by Egan is called The Educated Mind, How Cognitive Tools Shape Our Understanding. And its argument is kind of hard to summarize, but the thrust is that the way schools teach has become too disconnected from the way young people are wired to learn. That idea appealed to Brandon Hendrickson, an educator who stumbled across Egan's work while doing a master's program in education at the University of Washington a few years ago. Since then, Brandon has been digging into the scholar's work. And he now writes a newsletter on Substack called The Lost Tools of Learning, Espousing the Philosopher's Teachings. This blog post is 23,000 plus words, and it feels kind of almost as long as a book itself. And it is an unusual book review. It's got spots where the author pretends to have a dialogue with an imagined reader who maybe doesn't agree with what's going on. And it has some hand-drawn diagrams illustrating some of the key points. I really recommend listeners check it out. You can find a link to it on our website at edsurge.com. After someone recommended this review to me, I was super curious to talk to its author. And so last week, I connected with Brandon Hendrickson to hear more about what he has learned from Kieran Egan's ideas. I started by asking, who was this scholar after all? Kieran Egan was sort of a mid-century polymath, sampled all sorts of, you know, the, the greatest ideas of all different fields, but really sunk his own teeth into education, background in philosophy and history, but became an educational philosopher and in the starting in the 70s and then the 80s and especially the 90s and aughts wrote a whole bunch of different books tons of journal articles and all of that of course uh advancing this very old and very new way of understanding education brandon has been a classroom teacher himself at an experimental school in seattle and he told me he had been on a quest of sorts to find a better model or framework to improve education and it was in the library at the University of Washington where he first stumbled on Egan's work. I mm. was in the Susalo Library, one floor up, dingy, 
uh, uh, floors uh, scraped with chair markings and terrible fluorescent lights. And I was in there late one night looking for a book on the history of American education. And I think I found it original, uh, eventually. But what I found in the meantime, right next to it, was this book by this guy named Kieran Egan, whom I have never had never heard of before. This book called Getting It Wrong from the Beginning, which was him just laying an axe to the beginnings of educational reform in the 20th century specifically and showing how a lot of the ideas that that seemed so common sense at the time, and frankly, to a lot of us in the educational reform community, seem still so common sense to us that they don't really make any sense when you really drill down on them. And they haven't matched anything that people have been talking about in the worlds of, of serious social science for really the last few decades now. That we have been that educational reform has been coasting on these outdated ideas about human nature, about human psychology, about human society. And and that we are ripe for a reinvention of some of our basic ideas, basic understandings about education. You have described Egan's work as very hard to summarize. Is that fair to say? Yes, which I think is one of the problems, one of the reasons that uh, Egan education has struggled to really get a foot in practice is because Egan, in some ways what he's offering is not even a philosophy of education. It's like a meta philosophy of education. And it's really difficult sometimes to figure out what he's actually striking at, uh, especially since the way that he understands education, he had to sort of invent his own categories that bring together a lot of things that people talk about in these different fields to make it as simple as he possibly could. And so it's a lot of work just to figure out, like, what are these terms that he has? What do they mean? So, yeah, my like part of my quest now for the last year has been to figure out how can I describe Egan standing on one foot, as the great rabbi Hillel uh, was asked to do by, by a Roman soldier about the Torah? Um, and I, I have gotten it, I think, to, to a handful of sentences. Uh, that book review was my 70-page attempt to explain Egan. And I think I, I've been told by people in his circles that I, that I got it, that I, that, that, I, that I more or less succeeded at it. Um, uh, warts and all. Uh, but now I'm working to make it even shorter. Well, good. Well, I will uh, take a stab at, at helping in this way for those listeners right now, because I want to at least ask you questions to hone in on a couple pieces of what you've talked about of Egan's work in, uh, in the hopes that we can kind of like get some, um, that at least, and maybe it just for selfishly, I can help under, understand it, understand it better for myself. I think it's useful to start and it's very Silicon Valley, right? To start with stating the problem. So you, you alluded to Egan's critique of the education reform space as he saw it. Could you, could you go over in a nutshell, his beef about why he thinks the, the thinking is outdated? You know, what's the problem he's trying to solve? Yeah. So I think a lot of the times what we do in educational reform is we get really interested in taking, as it were, a microscope to human cognition. So you'll see people get really excited about, you know, this part of the brain that is activated when we do math or whatever in a certain way. And there can be value in this or this specific kind of tool that can be used that is really helpful. And, and, and that, that too, that too is very, can be very, very helpful. What Egan does instead is take this sort of like jet, 50,000 feet over the territory of education. And he says, okay, like what is going on with education really 
broadly, the, the, what is the biggest possible picture of education that we can paint, not only over the last you know century, but over the last millennia? Uh, even in some ways, going back to like before we evolved to be humans, like what 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 is going on with the human mind, with the human with the human event uh, that we are able to to do education the way that that that, that we do. He talked about chimpanzees, in other words, like basically like evolutionarily, like how do we as evolved creatures like um, learn? Yeah. And and I, I've actually been trying to extend his work even back all the way to uh, to bacteriums. <laughs> right? There we go. Uh, which is which is, you know, like I think there's a lot. I mean, I'm, who am I citing here? Antonio Damasio, the great mm. psychologist and cognitive theorist, Antonio Damasio, uh, Descartes' error, uh, the strange order of things, um, uh, who points out that you can actually learn a lot about humans by looking at colonies of bacteria, <laughs> uh, that they band together in battle formations, that they that they act as if they have emotions. They don't have cognition. They don't have, but they have like these mechanisms inside of them that give them the things, the reactions that we automatically look at and say, oh, those are those are emotions. Those are strategies. Those are skills. Those are. And so to just look at like what so many people do in education is we look at like, what do we see smart people doing now? And how can we emulate that? And Egan says, look, like this modern way of thinking, the systematic, this analytical uh, ways of thinking, they come from somewhere. Um, we 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 did not come into the world as a species with these things. We've had these things max for the last few thousand years, and they've only become plentiful in the last couple hundred years. And school is all about this sort of modern way of thinking. And great, right? We 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 want this modern way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, but like it has been evolving painfully and slowly over the centuries and millennia and eons. And we should be looking to that. To, to 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 make sense of things. If I can if I can answer the question also in a, in a different fashion, what we've had over the last hundred years, especially, has been these two battling camps of educational philosophies: educational traditionalism and educational progressivism. And traditionalism says traditionalism yells content, 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 and progressivism says no, focus on the learner. And traditionalism says just direct, give direct instruction for what people need to know. And progressivism says, mm, invite them into inquiry. We have the standardization versus customization. We have student as receiver versus student as participant. We have rigor and we have curiosity on the other side. And it's like Egan says, we... It, it, it's like that old parable of the blind men and the elephant. Do you do you know do you know that parable? I was going to say for those who don't know it, we could give the quick two seconds though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, of, of, there is an elephant, and there are these people who cannot see, and they are trying to figure out what it is that they are that they're looking at. So they're all feeling it, and one of them grabs the trunk and says, "Oh, this is a hose." Another one says, "Oh, this is a wall," and another one grabs the trunk and says, "Oh, these are spears." And what really it is is an elephant, and Egan is trying to describe the elephant. It's like traditionalists and progressivists have been arguing over what this thing is and just getting pieces, true pieces, of what human education and what human humanity is, what the human learner is. Um, but when you zoom out to the 50,000-foot vantage point, you see things so much more clearly. What When you have this um, problem, as Egan sees it, and this this gets back to my uh, this moment where you discover it in the library, like, and then you're I'm sure you dig into it. And then, what was your reaction to finding this? It sounds like you had literally been on a quest to find a champion theorist for yourself. Um, 
what was it like to find this? It was like, I mean, I, I remember that I couldn't sleep that night. <laughs> I, I, uh, I realized why I had been so confused in graduate school with my classes and so confused when I talked to these people who, you know, advanced one or another camp inside of the educational reform movements. And it was that what very few of them, not none of them, but what very few of them actually had experienced was this zeal of learning, this excitement that the world feels like this, I'll say magical, I'll say wonderful, but also like with the dark aspects of our ideas of magic and of, of wonder, this awesome, awful place, this epic. And that, of course, what you want to do is try to wrap your head around all of this. And of course, then science and history and music and and uh, and math and everything are these sort of windows into the great mystery that surround us. Uh, my favorite quote from Egan is, we are surrounded by mystery and what we know is fascinating. But but he says in schools, it's almost like this seems like it's a disreputable fact. It's a little bit embarrassing <laughs> that this idea of the world. So, you know, we accept this sort of perspective and, you know, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye or whatever. This is okay on YouTube, but this this feels like it's this you know, okay. It's okay to admit that it's wonder and we don't know stuff. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, and to actually have an emotional reaction, you know, that that uh, that fits that and that the point of education then is to bring kids uh, through their emotions into into this wonder and it makes sense why we don't do that in classrooms typically because it turns out <laughs> for everyone who has ever been like a first day teacher and has done that thing where you flail your arms on the front of the at the front of the room and you try to get kids excited about it and you slow down your speed of of talking as you as you see all of these sort of dead, confused eyes staring back at you. I'm uh, speaking for speaking for a friend here, Def. Oh, for sure, for sure. I'm sure no one in the audience has has done that, but <laughs> um, but uh, uh, just right, having a person on the stage trying to do this. I mean, if they're a very good lecturer or something like that, sure, that can actually work. But then what Egan's what Egan's quest became was to figure out, okay, how do you do this? And his his insight, like his brilliant insight was to recognize that in order like this has been done before. We are not the first people to try to figure out how do I emotionally engage the next generation into understanding what I understand, what we understand to be of desperate value. Because, of course, this is the human secret. This is the secret of human success, as uh, the anthropologist Joe Henrik has titled a book. We are this pathetic animal, right? Like, we have no hides. Our claws are nothing. We ha Our teeth are a joke. I think I'm quoting Hobbes from Calvin and Hobbes here. Uh, and we're not—the mistake that we've made in the modern era, from Descartes and really even maybe Aristotle on— has been thinking that the thing that makes us so impressive as an animal species is the fact that we're so clever. And and look, like we really 
are clever in a certain way. <laughs> uh, in, in fact, in, in, in many ways. But we're not clever individually. An individual human being just thrown into the wild will be, you know, starved to death and be eaten by lions within a weekend. The thing that makes us brilliant is our ability to tap into the hive mind, our ability to learn and be taught by the people who came before us who have these, who, who can then hook us into the best things that they have learned or been taught themselves. This is how humans survived for, you know, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of years as, as, as homo, as modern homo sapiens is by tapping into the hive mind and becoming wise and adept and skillful in ourselves from that and then being able to pass that on to the next generation. And Egan's, I mean, I, I probably will keep saying Egan's amazing insight numerous times here, but one of his amazing insights was to recognize that all of this had been done before. And so what he, what he did was then look to anthropology and say, what do we see across the world <laughs> people doing? You know, we had this moment in history a few hundred years ago where Europeans started sailing across the world, and at first they were shocked by the things that everybody did that was just so very different, right, than how Western Europeans were doing it. Um, and then only gradually did anthropologists realize that you kept seeing so many of the same things pop up in around the world by peeps, groups of people who had, had, had been separated by hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, and there are things like stories, there are things like riddles, there are things like songs, there are things like metaphors, like these vivid mental images. And it's possible that we evolved these. It's possible that these are actually literally part of our genetic human nature, at least to some degree. Uh, but it at least seems very probable that these things are also very cultural. And they're cultural because you can't have a culture without having stories. You can't have a culture without having metaphors. You can't have a culture without having songs and dances and, 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 and rituals. That in order to bind together as a group of people, you need to have these things. That these are the load-bearing things, not just externally, but also then internally in human cognition. These things like stories and metaphors and images, they're the big gears that turn the wheels of, of the human mind. They are cognitively privileged. And so often, traditionalists will say, just like, pack in more content. And, and progressivists will say, oh, like, have people explore and do experiments. And, and, and both of those are not, both of those have one foot in, in truth. <laughs> but when we see that the big gears are stories and riddles and uh, songs and metaphors and things like that, then we can say, okay, how can we put more of those in schooling, even at the youngest ages, because it turns out that there is some actually some pretty good evidence that even like preschoolers and kindergartners seem to be better at some of these like big geary sort of things than college undergraduates are. There was this tragic situation where about a hundred years ago we realized well, I don't say the word realized. Educational reformers about a century ago understood that packing more content in was a bad idea. The kids weren't understanding it, that they were just being able to mouth uh, the things that they were taught without really having a conceptual understanding of what, was, of what was going on. And so they said, okay, what we should do is just remove so much of the cognitive, of the intellectual content of the early grades. And that ended up 
being a solution to a problem that ended up causing possibly a larger <laughs> problem, as so many of the reform movements of the early 20th century in retrospect uh, ended up. And what Egan's big process is, what his big advice is, is we can pack the elementary school curriculum with so much cognitive intellectual content, stuff that is not just deep, but is also juicy, <laughs> stuff that when teachers teach it, typically the teachers do not actually know. They, they are learning this for the first time, these things that they are teaching, and the teachers fall in love with, and the classes fall in love with. I'm sorry. What was the question that I was being asked? To, you know? yeah, so, I mean, you're getting at you're getting at where I wanted to go next, which is that if you did have to say what Egan suggests in a broad sense, since he's had this, you know, he's sort of reframing the problem and, and stepping back to see the whole elephant, and some, and he he I noticed he names his book about um, cognitive tools, and so are. Are these the tools that you mentioned? Stories, metaphors, jokes? Is that is that what he's is saying that people need to sort of like not forget about as they design a, a a schooling experience? Yeah, I would say that the big thing, if I had to put everything that Egan is saying even into one word, I think it would be to rehumanize the curriculum. Now, the problem with putting anything into one word is that word then is a, ends up being maybe too load-bearing, right? Like, what does that mean to rehuman? And, that, and that's a word that he does not, I don't believe that he himself, that he himself uses ever. Um, sure. But, uh, but what he means by that is to take these tools that some of which come quasi-naturally to people, and those are the ones that you, some of the ones that you just mentioned. On your, so let's actually, let's say them because I, I, I didn't say the whole list. You list them on a blog post uh, that you wrote or a Substack post that you did. Um, stories, metaphors, jokes, riddles, gossip, ideals, worldviews, and skepticism. Is that? So those are some of them. And actually one of the difficulties of Egan is that he never set out his sort of official list of these are all the tools and everybody who Shoot. works his tradition writes. Uh, everybody who works sort of in his wake is coming up with their own sort of bespoke lists of these, which is in some ways fine. I think and a crucial thing to recognize about Egan is that Egan does not, does not in the end succeed at clearly identifying like this is how to do education. <laughs> um, Maybe that is actually also a reason that he struggled to find a following. I think in education, you, as in so many realms of human life, you get more of a following when you say, this is it. Here are these, you know, these 18 principles. Just memorize these. And Egan, I think, was never able to do that because he always recognized that he had never done that. I, and I don't think that that is even probably possible to do. But taking a look at that list that you said, a lot of those are the ones that he says, these are the ones that people have very early on. If they are in a culture, they have the ability to tell stories and understand stories and do metaphors and play and to play games and to do riddles and puzzles and to solve mysteries and to a number of other things like that, right? Gossip about people. And then, and this is where his sort of, you know, wonky, confusing, but probably ultimately more accurate understanding of the human condition comes into this. Oh, geez, do I ever feel weird? Just like, I'm using phrases like the human condition in an educational podcast right now, which I, I'm, wor I'm worried, Jeff, that like half of your audience is going to be put off by that. But I feel like this is part of why we have been stuck in education for so long is that we have not sort of taken 
what we're trying to do and, and tapped into like the big insights that um, uh, anthropologists and sociologists and historians and uh, and evolutionary psychologists and God help us all philosophers have really been working on over the last few decades. At this point, I want to cut in and let Kieran Egan get a word in. Because this scholar gave many talks about his ideas over the years, and several of them are available on YouTube. There's one I found, I think, that gives a flavor of his thinking and style. It's of a talk he gave at Simon Fraser University back in 2009. And it's titled, Why Education is Difficult and Contentious. Here's a short clip. Indeed, you know, if you look at these reports of what uh, students know when they come to a university or when they leave high school, it is a stunningly small amount of what they've actually been taught. You know, if, they, if the curriculum is a vast encyclopedia of human knowledge, uh, what is known is pitifully little at the end of schooling. And it shouldn't be so difficult because the world is wonderful and people like to know things. Um, do you know what state in the U.S. is named after Julius Caesar? Oh, I'll give you a clue. Um, uh, in, in 55 BC, Caesar beat up the Britons. Um, he uh, then quartered his army over the winter uh, on these islands off the coast of Gaul, and they became known as the Insulae Caesariae. Okay. And over the centuries, Caesariae degenerated. Oh, that's the wrong phrase, wrong, wrong word. They it morphed from Caesariae Jersey. So Jersey is actually a transformation of the word Caesar. So New Jersey is actually New Caesar. Okay. Isn't it nice to know that? You know, <laughs> um, the world is infinitely wonderful, and somehow we are not very good at enabling children to enjoy um, the wonders of the world around them. So one of the things to I need to make this concrete for folks because people, a lot of people listening, probably have a group of kids that they work with, or they're running a school, or they're trying to, they're in a context where they can't reinvent the entire thinking of the last millennia. So um, you mentioned, and I was really struck by this, that there was a school in Oregon that either was or is actually trying to be an Egan-inspired school. Um, and it, it, tell us, I don't know if you visited it, but it sounds like you've at least been familiar with it. Um, what does it look like? And, um, you know, yeah, walk us into the school. <laughs> that that would be the using these techniques um, and and starting points. Yeah. So my wife and I and a friend of ours had a chance to visit the school twice. And, and where was, is it in Oregon? It's in Cor. It was. It, it, it's been now deceased for a number of years. But it was in Corbett, Oregon, about forty-five minutes to the east of. Okay, elementary school. Is this like a private school, public school, charter school? What is this? Uh, it was one of those confusing situations where it was a public – it's a very small district that had exactly one building for elementary, middle, and high school. And the the elementary school uh, part of it was the Egan wing of it, and they were looking to expand into the rest of it. And, it, and this ended up dying uh, because of the usual sort of local political issues that any sort of small educational experiment that it requires um, the buy-in of the community uh, uh, is is prey to. Um, uh, but I will say that when I went there, my life was changed. <laughs> After years of studying Egan, um, to actually get to see it in person, and one of the weirdest things about it was that it 
I could totally imagine how someone could go to it and they wouldn't see the pizzazz because they'd be looking for external pizzazz. They'd be looking for the kids doing something that kids don't ordinarily do in school. Um, but I spent a day when I went there twice uh, listening to the lessons that the kids were getting and looking at the ways that they reacted to these and then getting to talk to the kids at recess, at lunch, right, whatever, and finding in these kids this, this deep love of the world. Kids who understood so many things that I did not understand in middle school or high school or college about science or about history, and who just had this, this deep, calm desire to learn more and more about this. But back to the school being not so shockingly different than than other schools. The desks were in rows and the teacher was at the front and that kind of thing. I mean, it was like, that's not what's being innovated on. Yeah, yeah. What was, um, I, I can't even remember the... I'm trying to call to mind right now what exact order the desks were. It, it looked a lot like my son's public school uh, elementary uh, education sort of setup from there. Um, the difference was that when you said you wanted to get specific, can I give what mm -hmm. I think would be Egan's sort of like his his most basic piece of advice to teachers Please. of almost any of almost any age level? It's that. Oftentimes, when we sit down to plan our lessons, what we are told that we, we should ask ourselves is, okay, like, what is, like, the thing that is the most important that I want the kids to understand? And, okay, like, how can I do sort of backwards planning? You know, this is, um, I forget that, Higgins and McTie, I'm probably getting that wrong. Um, uh, uh, how can we plan backwards and get them to that, that perspective? Egan says, do something that kind of is like that, except that sit down, learn a lot about the thing that you are supposed to teach them. Actually, go deeper than like what your superficial sort of adult level understanding is. Like go to Wikipedia, go to ChatGPT, go to YouTube, especially because YouTube is filled with fantastic science and history and whatever educators who have actually done the really hard work of going ridiculously deep into these topics. Um, and then ask yourself once you do that, okay, what seems most alive for me about this thing that I want to teach them. And then say, okay, how can I help them not just know that fact, but have that experience of making that feel alive? And then once one has identified this, Egan says, okay, like now think about like, what is the emotional binary of this, right? Like, is it like, does this give you a sense of like, freedom versus oppression? Does it give you a sense of like right versus wrong? Does it give you a sense of love versus hate? Which is the core of storytelling, is it? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Egan, in, like his whole sort of like early set of uh, of tools uh, can be uh, summarized by saying, you know the things that storytellers do? You know the things that, that YouTube uh, influencers do to make their thing interesting? You know the thing that documentary filmmakers do? You know the thing that podcasters do to make their things interesting? Do that, <laughs> which is just so basic. That it's it's easy to just think, oh yeah, that would be like a little like sort of icing on top. And and really, like it is the sort of thing that you it could just be icing on top if you just do a little bit of it. But if you start looking at how you approach all of your lessons with what is the thing that means the most to me as the teacher, what we find is that 
again and again and again, and you do that, you know, day in and day out in your classroom, you start having this different relationship to the thing that you're teaching. And you start having a different relationship with your students. You start to become this bridge between the thing that you are studying, sorry, the thing that you are teaching, the thing that you are now increasingly in love with in a way that maybe you haven't been since you began studying it years ago. And you help that love get transferred to the students. The students sort of catch the fire of the thing of, of that you have in yourself, of that thing that you are studying. It seems like I hear critiques in my head from people I've talked to over the years um, come in here of like one would be, I, you know, I, I, we're not here to entertain kids. I mean, it's a different level, especially college teachers. I hear like uh, might, might say the, the somehow like um, Ted talks ruined it for every lecture because they are so darn entertaining and like to get through the material that people really need to become a practicing engineer or, or um, some complicated field um, in the humanities, even or anything history. You know that you have to trudge through um, the 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 less exciting stuff. And so, what would you say to somebody who would hear what you just described and be like, "That sounds like edutainment, not learning." I think that Egan would say that. One of the most pernicious divisions that we make is between education and entertainment. I think that when people say that, you know, we shouldn't just make education into entertainment, I think that there are some very wise pieces of that, to be very clear. And I think that there are some things that from a practical standpoint, it, 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 does, not, it does not make sense <laughs> for us to try to make them all exciting and whatnot. There is some aspect of eat your vegetables that is probably, if not absolutely, strictly speaking, necessary, theoretically, at least practically, sure, great. But sure. Egan would say that the matter with schooling is that schooling doesn't matter to, to too many kids. You've probably seen the Yale study that came out uh, almost exactly four years ago, um, right before the pandemic hits, uh, hmm. looking at how emotionally engaged uh, students were in, st in school. And they found out something like 60% of the time high schoolers reported when like you, you know, buzz them or whatever, send them text in the moment uh, to feeling, I think the most frequent words were tired, stressed, and bored, that they were not emotionally engaged in what they were doing. And it's... It's like there's a button in our head that is the mattering button. And if something matters to us, then the lesson itself doesn't need to be that great. We will work to understand it. So much of educational reform, especially the uh, cognitive science and education uh, movement that I really adore, <laughs> um, ignores the primacy of of the of of mattering that a student has to find that something is meaningful to them and if we can just do that then almost everything follows and i guess all of egan's methods kind of come down to how can we press that button again and again and then i'd say that there's actually even like panning out from there there is this sort of tragic irony <laughs> of if the things that we were teaching, so, you know, I, I'm a science teacher now. It, 
if the things that we were teaching were actually boring, then you know it might be a little bit silly to try to dress them up and pretend that they were interesting. Uh, sometimes we talk about this as putting chocolate on to broccoli, trying to like do these things <laughs> to make them seem interesting. Sure. So we get to kids to eat their vegetables. But the truth is, and this sounds so romantic and unrealistic, but again and again, I find that it is the truth that there are precious few things that are in the curriculum, K through 12, college, that are not in some way desperately engaging. And the evidence of that is typically that everything that we are teaching kids is something that someone ha else had to work really hard to unpack the first time, to discover or to invent the first time. And oftentimes we look back at like their stories. This we, we can actually do this in class then and bring in the gossip about the people who first discovered or invented these things and, and see like what was the problem that they were trying to solve? What were the emotional binaries that they were struggling with? What was, you know, the future that they feared would come to pass? And then to see this thing that that we that that we now get to teach students as sort of this heroic achievement. I mean, I teach a course on punctuation and how to use punctuation perfectly. <laughs> and we teach each of the punctuation marks from periods to commas to semicolons to dash all the various types of dashes as attempts to save the world and my goodness i know that sounds overblown and and, and i i kind of am overblowing it a little bit but no like like it turns out that historically the the, the semicolon the bloody semicolon <laughs> was invented by aldus manutius in the early 1500s early 1500s is an attempt to end the dark ages and bring back the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome. And when you understand that, it's not just a superficial sort of like, oh yeah, it's kind of neat. Okay, now I have to learn these rules for the semicolon. No, no, like the rules for how you use the semicolon come out of the basic story that, that, uh, that starts with Aldous Manutius trying to end the dark ages. And so much of this is the case, right? That everything that we teach in science, everything that we teach in math, everything that we teach in all the all the classes that we think have nothing to do with story, they are actually pieces of a much larger story that we are all a part of. Some people might say, like, don't people, don't good teachers, haven't teachers always done this, what you're describing? Like, the, is this maybe kind of common sense of, like, getting that infectious you know, transferring the excitement that the teacher has about the material, um, you know, embodying it so that students have intrinsic motivation. Isn't that a thing? Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, Egan um, talked about part of how, I mean, part of how he came up with his ideas was, as I said, like to, you know, really learn anthropology and learn cultural history and cognitive philosophy and all sorts of things like that. But the other half of it was just going into classrooms of various sorts and looking at what is the teaching that students most obviously are responding to. Yeah, there's absolutely an element of this, that this is just so common sense that we should ignore it. Uh, when I did my book review, um, some of the comments were, this is common sense and therefore stupid, we can ignore this. Interestingly, others of the comments were, this is totally weird, high in the sky stuff, that goes against everything that we know about learning theory, and we should ignore it. 
the one of the one things that seems like the storyteller version does that need a romanticized teacher that is every teacher has to be this amazing you know performer and um or how how do you make a system that would you know reliably bring quality education in in this egan way i think that if i had heard about what the school was i might assume that when the teachers were teaching they were on a stage and there was lights and they were you know telling these stories ridiculously engagingly and these were you know master storytellers this is robin williams and dead poets society right standing on desks and 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 none of that or maybe i should say maybe like 4% sure which is yeah it's there may be teachers like that anywhere but that's not the ma- the norm yeah 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 and i think the teachers who are like that i mean can when they begin to bring in some of Egan's ideas and practices into um, what they teach, I th- I think that I mean I, I go, I'll speak for myself here. Teaching began to be so much more emotionally and intellectually gratifying. Like it, the day I started to bring these things in, and has only become more and more so over the years that I've integrated this. But I think that what Egan saw was that the crucial thing is not changing how teachers teach. That's one of the necessary pieces of it. But the, w- the place that the most change is made is in recognizing that the ways that we design our curriculum, even sort of like, just like the basic ways that we have kids engage the world, they're not designed to take advantage of these big gears that kids can be so, so good at. So this opens up the curriculum to all sorts of small things. So like one of the things that I saw a teacher do um, – uh, in uh, uh, in every class that I visited there was um, telling stories of history to, to make history stories of the whole world of tons of different cultures of tons of different ages of tons of different ways of living life to make that sort of a, a water bearer um, uh, to make that load bearing and how we understand things and kids are just interested in that. Another aspect though is the this school actually um, invented this uh, uh, from from Egan's ideas. They invented this process of uh, recognizing that okay, if everything truly is interesting, then we could take the whole elementary school just to some place that is very close to us. For them, it was the Columbia River Gorge, and we could do this deep dive over the course of three whole years on what is going on with the Columbia River Gorge. And so they had a year just looking into the geology, a year looking into the natural history of the place, the animals and plants, and then a year looking into the human history of the place and the human culture of the place. And they, you know, so I talked to these kids and these kids could like walk me through the history of the Columbia River Gorge from the Big Bang. I know, I think literally it was from the cooling of the earth 4.5 billion years ago to the present. And of course, you could see kids do something like that in almost any place if they were Ravenclaws (laughs) or if uh, the school was a school for Ravenclaws, uh, if the school just kind of forced them to memorize all of these things. But what was amazing when I talked to just like, you know, random kids in the class about their projects in this is that they could just like tell me from memory and, and 
discourse animatedly about how cool it was <laughs> that, you know, you could like trace back like this something, something, the uplifting of the continental plate because of the Juan de Fuca plate that was coming underneath it. And the Juan de Fuca plate had been part of this larger plate, but it broken off this many hundreds of millions of years ago because of the updwelling of the mantle and blah, 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 blah. It was like talking to the most excited professor you'd ever talked to, except that these kids were in third and fourth grade. Why do you think it's resonated so much with um, this, you know, especially this audience? I know that um, blog, um, Astral Codex 10, is like also really influential in Silicon Valley and and among a lot of innovative, you know, thinkers around the country. Why do you think it's your, your you know, kind of explanation of Egan's educated mind is, is so just sort of like caught on there? I think that a lot of us who end up doing impressive intellectual things, if I can include myself in that class. We had this experience of school where school was usually relatively easy, but did not really scratch the itch that we felt toward understanding, just toward experiencing the life of the mind as wondrous. And I feel like for a century now, we've had all of these educational reforms that end up, you know, being sort of resurvings of educational traditionalism or educational progressivism that promise the moon, but then just keep bringing, keep reinventing the same sorts of fail states that we've seen again and again and again. Especially since they don't frequently hit that mattering button inside of kids' heads. I think that especially inside of Silicon Valley, there is a desire, especially among people in Silicon Valley who have kids, there's, there's this desperate need to help our kids experience the joy of wrestling with ideas and of finding just like the facts and the experience of the world to be terribly interesting. And I think that there's this emerging understanding that, that, the, that the offers that we have even the most exciting, I, I say this to you as somebody who like, right, like you have invested this portion of your life, like talking to people who are in charge of really exciting educational innovations. There's this fear that we don't have a theory that will help connect those things together. That in the end, all of these amazing changes on the margins may evaporate because in order to, um, because we don't have a way of, uh, of making them work for all students and we don't have a way of knitting them all together. I think there is a hunger increasingly for a new theory as to how we can make all of this work. Well, there's so much provocative stuff here and I, I, I think we'll call it for now, but people, I encourage people in the show notes, they can see, you know, your whole article, your book review. I think there's even a podcast version of it so people can listen to it. But thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for this, Jeff. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please follow this podcast wherever you listen. We are on all the platforms. And please tell a friend about the Ed Surge Podcast to help us continue to grow. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on x at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig, and music is by Komaku. 
quick program note, we will actually be doing a live podcast taping down in Austin in a couple weeks at the South by Southwest EDU Festival. If you're going to be at that event, we'd love to see you in person. We're going to be talking about the growing public skepticism of college and the impact that's having on prospective students. Meanwhile, we'll be back here on your feed next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks so much for listening.